0: Gracious God, we thank you so much for hearing some of the stories that we've talked about today. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity we have to join you in the work of restoring this world into the way it should be and life as you have intended it. We ask now, God, in this moment, as we have, we're getting ready to celebrate the Advent, we ask now, God, that we would be reminded of how you've worked through the story of Esther and through the life of Mordecai and others. Holy Spirit, we, in this moment, need ears to hear what you have to say to us. And so we, God, we come humbly. And we ask that this moment would be your voice speaking your life into us. changing us. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see everybody. As we said, we are in our final uh, part of the book of Esther. I'm glad you have the chance to be here with us. Esther has taught us so many things from its beginning until now, but one of the things that you do continue to see in the book of Esther is that life can literally change just in a second. That's what you see in Esther. Scene change. If you look at the life of Esther, she is a young Jewish woman in one scene who is passing as Persian. But in another scene, she's the queen of Persia. If you look in another scene, you see Haman. Haman gets exalted to the very top of the kingdom, second in charge to the king. You couldn't get any higher. But in another scene, you see him hanging on 75-foot gallows. He couldn't get any higher. You look in another scene, you think about Mordecai. Mordecai, he went from being this man who's interceding on behalf of the Jews, and yet he's now about to be hung one night, and then all of a sudden the scene changes. And now he takes over all the riches and the finances of Haman. He was in one scene about to be hung by the king, and another scene he's in the favor of the king. This idea of reversals is not just about the characters in this book. The idea of reversals is really about the character of God. God is a God of reversals. It's throughout the text, all throughout the book. If you look in the book of Genesis, you see Joseph. Joseph, in one scene, he's a slave. All of a sudden, in another scene, he's all the way, the second in charge of Egypt, right next to Pharaoh. If you look in the book of Exodus, you look at Moses. In one scene, he's running away to a desert because he's killed someone. And then you look at another scene, he's leading the people of God in the wilderness. If you look in the book of 1 Samuel, you see David. In one scene, he's leading sheep. But in another scene, he's the king of Israel. And then the greatest reversal of them all, the Gospels tell us about this man, Jesus, who was an innocent carpenter. In one scene, he is being hung on a cross, and in another scene, he is a resurrected king. He is a God of reversals. And in so doing, these, all these scenes point to a story that no human can predict, but only a God can produce. It is with this in mind that we are reminded that in this season of your life, you're in a scene. There are things that you're surrounded by. There are stories, there's a narrative that you are a part of. And part of what troubles us is we are trying to predict how the situation will work out. We're in the middle of the scene, but we want to know the fullness Of the story. We want to predict how it will end. We want the narrative to be simple, and yet it is very dramatic. I was hanging out with a couple last night, and now as I was with them, they asked me, when did I know I wanted to become a pastor? And I knew pretty early on in my walk with God I wanted to become a pastor. But at the age of 28, I had come to work with a church, and they wanted me on their teaching team but they decided that um, I shouldn't be on the teaching team. I didn't really, I didn't do anything um, to not be on it. But they decided they wanted another guy on the teaching team. And I, I felt like I could preach. I felt like I could teach. I felt like I could lead. And I, and, they, and I hate to say this, but the guy that was preaching in my place couldn't. It just wasn't his gifting. That just, that's not what God wanted him to do. And so it was really hard. Like I'm sitting here every day hearing this guy preach. And I'm like, I should be up there. So, they gave me announcements. Boy, do you know how much Holy Ghost sauce I put on those announcements, boy? (laughs) Man, I was announcing things and people were clapping and all this other stuff. And, And I knew that I wanted to stay in favor with the pastor. So, I always had good timing, I always honored the pastor. But all they gave me was announcements. For three years of my life, I made announcements. Three years of my life, I just got up there and said, come on, children's team. Come on. Hey, I I was giving the announcements for three years, but I felt called to something greater. And then one day, a church contacted me to be their lead pastor because they heard how I did announcements. What I'm telling you right now is it's not about the scene you're in. It's how you are operating in the scene. God placed you in that scene because he's the author of the story. God has you in a scene right now. He's got you in a narrative right now. And it feels like it's slow. It feels like it's laborious. It feels like it won't work out. But he is the author of the story. And he gives us Stories like the Book of Esther, stories like the story of Joseph, stories like David, stories like Moses, so we cannot just see scenes but a full story so we can be confident in the author. You can be confident in the author of your story. Philip Yancey says it this way: "Faith means believing God in advance, what will only make sense in reverse. Right now, it's encouraging to hear the story because we see the final chapter, but you don't know the final chapter. You don't know how work will work out. You don't know how relationships will work out. So you must be faithful to God in the scene, in the season that you're in. And hopefully from this book, we will close out and see how Esther was faithful and how God was the God of reversals. Amen? Well, in this chapters 8 through 10, I mostly will just cover parts of chapter 8 and a part of chapter 9, the context here is quite interesting because what's happening is Haman wanted the people of God annihilated. He's already gotten a decree from the king to have all Jews taken out. And so the only thing left to know was when they would die. It says in Esther chapter 3, verse 7, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast per. That is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Haman wants to see the people of God killed. So the casting of lots, the author there is translating per, which is in Persian, it's lot, And so the way that we would translate lots in our day is like rolling dice. And the rolling of the dice based upon the number would give us insight. At that time, if you were making a major decision and you were a person that was outside of the monotheistic camp of Israel, you would want to somehow connect to the astrological forces and all the gods and figure out how do you make decisions. So the way that they made decisions was by casting lots, i.e. per. And the casting of lots was the way in which they'd be confident that they did the right thing. Can you imagine that the people of God have already heard about the decree of death, that they were to die, and there are people rolling dice for their life. The question isn't, is it a death sentence? The questioning is, when is the execution? And so they're rolling dice, they're casting lots. And what would eventually happen is they would come to the conclusion that the people of God, the Jews, would have a year and a half based upon how the lots fell. The Bible says that they cried, they fasted, they mourned. Life and death was completely random. All chance. And there was nothing they could do about it. Unless there was someone who intervened. One of the things to keep in mind is, based upon what we understand in Daniel chapter 6, that when a Persian king put forth a decree, it was irrevocable. Once he said it was going to happen, it was going to happen. And the people of God knew that. The only way that they could have a reversal is that the decree of death would need a counter-decree of life. They would need a way for them to survive. They did not know of any other way. And so this is where their concern is. Know that the story here is going to end up being a celebration, as Pastor Rasul mentioned. Can you think about how afraid they would be, knowing that their time is limited? Can you think for a second If you knew the day you were going to be slaughtered and you were given 18 months, that's the kind of fear overwhelming their community, knowing their time is limited. But the weight of their fears also was the engine for their celebration. This one day will turn into a celebration. God's going to turn their greatest fear into a great feast. Well, the Bible says that in Esther 8 and 3 Esther goes and speaks to the king she, watch this, fell at his feet wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews so Esther, who is the queen she goes to the king, and she, the Bible says, pleads with him. We're going to get into that for a second, but I I thought it was appropriate to just look at how this translates into our world because think about this just for a second. If you know the book at all, once we reach this point in chapter 8, verse 3, something has happened in chapter 7. There's this great banquet and there's this great reversal that happens. So whereas The king was about to kill Mordecai and the Jews, but all of a sudden he kills Haman. Now he sees Esther completely different, and Esther tells him that she is Jewish. Esther no longer thinks she's going to die. If you look back in Esther chapter 4, she essentially says, if I die, I die. Well, she's not going to die, and she knows she's not going to die. Not only that, Mordecai, her uncle, isn't going to die. So her family is good, the only family she has. And more than that, her greatest enemy, Haman, is dead. Friends, family, good enemies, extinguished. What we have to understand is that the reversal of fortunes for the Jewish people here did not happen randomly. It happened because someone intervened. The God of reversal did a reversal for Esther so she could have a reversal for others. She intervenes because she understands God's still at work and he has one more scene. Well, here, her family's good her finances are good, her health is good, her wealth is good. She's being taken care of by the king. Maybe one of the things that we forget as people of God is that sometimes we think our greatest intercession is for our health, our wealth, our friends, and our family. I wonder, once your family is good, do you still have a request for the king? You see, it all depends on how you see the king, and it's how you see yourself. If you see yourself as someone who has been sovereignly positioned and commissioned to help others, if you see your life where the reversal in your life has been brought about to bring reversal for others, then you will pray like it, and you will seek, uh, you will seek reversal, and you'll seek the benefit of others. And those kind of people who intervene on the behalf of others are dangerous to the enemy. But the others who are good with the friends and family plan, you are of no threat. Essentially, when it comes to intercession, there are people who are involved in spiritual warfare and there are people who are involved in spiritual welfare. Essentially, as long as my family is good, and my life is great my prayers cease but there are others who not only believe that their friends their family their life is taken care of by the king but they intercede for our world for their job for what is happening in the systems of this culture you are dangerous to the enemy that's why your life you've had so many challenges because you are seeking transformation and change i was telling another i was telling a, a couple they they uh, one of them plays basketball and uh, you got to understand that in basketball, when someone's not good at, at, at playing and you're playing, you know, on the court, um, if you don't really have to defend them, we call that person a self-check. Now, what that means is... What that means is you ain't got to worry about them. They're going to get the ball. They're going to dribble all over the place. They not gonna score, they're not going to score. Nothing's going to change because the ball is in their hands. And I'm saying some of you, your prayer life, you're essentially a spiritual self-check. You don't play for change for anybody else except you and your family. The, the enemy ain't got to worry about you. Maybe some of the bountifulness in your life comes about because you're not a threat to the enemy. But some of you have been going through this year. Uh, some of you have joined me in the gray-haired community. Amen. Uh, so welcome. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, some of you have been challenged. It's not simply because you've done the wrong thing. You've been praying the right prayers and you are a threat to the enemy. And I want to encourage you. Don't stop praying. Don't stop interceding and don't stop seeing your life as bigger and don't stop seeing your, the position you're in as greater and grander than just you and your own. Well, it says here, Esther. In Esther 8.3, look what she does. She pleads. She pleads. The word in Hebrew there is where we get the idea of impudence. You see, the Bible says she falls at her feet. She weeps. And she has impudence. That is to have a request without shame. Kids are wonderful at this. As parents, the, the most incredible thing you do is you say, didn't you just, didn't you just ask for something? You, you, I mean, the kids have no shame. They'll keep asking and asking and asking because it's all the way they see us. And so with this, she says, if it pleases the king, if I found favor in your sight, if this seems things seems right to you, and she is begging the king, Why does she beg so deeply? Why is she on her knees? Why is she crying? Why does she have impudence? Why doesn't she have shame? Why does she keep asking? Because she knows there's a decree of death on the people she loves. And it's because of that decree of death that she begs so deeply. And though this story speaks of a decree written by King Xerxes, there is a decree of death written in our world. The Bible says in Romans that there is a law of sin and death. Sin being so natural to us, the Bible would say we are children of wrath, separated from God until someone intervenes. But this law of sin and death not only affects our eternity, but it affects our temporal state as well. The systems of our world are suffering from this decree of death. So where there is plagues and pestilence, yes, but there is injustice and there is burden and there is pain and there is divorce And there's separation all throughout our world. Because of what has happened early on in the garden, sin has spread to all men. And there's a decree of death that has gone out. And yet God has, like Esther, positioned us to have reversed the fortunes of our life so that we might be part of reversing the fortunes of others' lives. The people of God get to be a part of this great reversal. I heard of a story once where high school students broke into a Sears. And when they broke into Sears, y'all know what Sears is, praise God? Let's just call it Target, okay? Let's just call it Context. They broke into a store, okay, <laughs> and they, instead of stealing things, they played a prank. They changed all the price tags on all the items in there. They put, for a $800 washing machine, they put a $20 price tag there. For a $50 pair of jeans, they switched out and put $5,000 on it. For a baseball bat that goes for $80, they put $1,500. And they made TVs look like they were only worth $5. As they broke in, what they did was they created a false estimate on what has been valued in that store. And essentially, when sin enters into the world, what it does is it distorts the way we value things. And it causes us to put the wrong estimate on people and Jesus so much so that we increase the infinite value of the of things of this world and we decrease the value of Jesus in this world and Jesus does this incredible reversal because the people of God are now his co-agents in this world breaking and he's having the kingdom break into homes and jobs and all types of places and now we like Esther are given a voice and we reverse the price tag on people and Jesus. We now give infinite value to Jesus and value to people and it is this breaking in that we remind people that they have inherent worth and we show the wonderful worth Of Jesus. We have to understand that the things that are happening in our world, this decree of death that goes out, yes, it should cause us to tell people about Jesus, but it should also cause us to know that there are people suffering under the weight of marginalization in our world that should cause us to have a voice so that we might have them experience the value and the worth of God. Think of What is happening in our own city when it comes to housing? Nine out of ten neighborhoods with the worst housing outcomes are in black and brown neighborhoods. Some of the worst housing quality conditions, that means maintenance defects, high rent, all out of uh, this idea of lowering the value of people. We see it in education. The lowest performing public schools are in neighborhoods with the highest concentration of black and brown residents. The highest performing elementary schools though are in the lowest areas of black and brown residents. So for example, Brownsville in Brooklyn only has a, only 23% of fourth grade students perform at a grade level compared to 85% in Battery Park. Now, listen, you can say that's just random. Or you can say, that's part of a system. And it's a system that if you get comfortable with it, because you say, my family's good, my life is good. You know. If you, in other words, again, if you are on the spiritual welfare system, then as long as God is treating you good, you're fine. But if you're part of the spiritual warfare system, then you break into places and you put on the display of God. We know that when it comes to criminal justice, Black and brown people are accused of crimes in Manhattan more, and are more likely than their white counterparts to be de- detained or in arraignment and receive a, a custodial sentence uh, offer due to the plea bargaining process and are being incarcerated. But lastly, health. Black and brown populations tend to live in neighborhoods with adverse housing quality, less food access, poor air quality, fewer recreational opportunities. Life expectancy in Brownsville is 75 years, an entire decade, than the life expectancy in Battery Park. And see, we've gotten used to it. And we've said, well, that's just the way that it is. And it makes us feel better when we see some people who, they might have gotten locked up or they might have made mistakes in life. And we are essentially saying That everything happening in a community is based on the efforts, the work, and the worth of those people. Because we say, essentially, we presume everyone is getting what they deserve. We presume that the people in Battery Park are working harder than the people in Brownsville. You say, well, I don't think that. If you didn't think that, then you'd pray about it. You know, I've, I've, I've been in so many discussions over the years about the, the J-word, justice, right? And what I've found is I've been in many theological debates. I've been in many deep sociological conversations. And at the end of those conversations with many of my counterparts, at the end, I always ask, okay, now that you feel better about this debate, do you care about people in that community? What I'm saying is, regardless of how you look at this theologically, do you care? Because if you cared, it would infect the way that we pray and we think about groups of people. I want you to know that I believe that God has raised up our church in a a time such as this to intercede for these issues. I believe that prayer is one of the missing components to fighting against injustice. I believe that, yes, we can march And yes, we can protest, but we've got to start interceding because one of the things we confuse is we don't remember that the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. They're not carnal. And so we must fight with the weapons that God has given us. And we must fight for others because God made a reversal in your life to make reversal in other people's lives. And you can live a life where it's better for you. And if someone else is broken, well, they got to figure it out. And I don't believe God saved you for that. I believe God set you apart to care for somebody else. And if you don't care for other people, I believe you're quenching the Holy Spirit in your life. The Spirit of God makes you care about somebody. It makes you love somebody. It makes you love somebody different. It makes you love somebody uh, broken. You should love the oppressed, the marginalized, and the destitute. I don't care how they got into the situation. I care about getting them out of that situation. And so what we've done in this season is we've, uh, I believe God has raised us up to have an organization we've talked about a lot called Pray March Act. And so we have a gathering coming up on January 17th on Martin Luther King Day. If you uh, don't have our Bridge Church app, I do pray that you go out and um, go out and get it, download it. (laughs) It's an app. Uh, Download it, and uh, once you download it, attend. If you're not going away that weekend, we pray that you would come with us. And we are going to be presenting different policy issues that we believe are plaguing our city. And we are going to spend time praying and worshiping, giving our best weapon to our, some of our worst enemies in our city. Amen? Well, in the text here, it says in Esther chapter 8, verse 4 and 5, it says, When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther... Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleases the king, if I've found favor in his sight, and if this thing seems right before the king, and I'm pleasing in his eyes, you can hear the way that she's pleading, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were in all provinces. goes on to say in verse 11 and 12, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. Now, I want you to know what what just happened there, and it is quite interesting The decree that was put forth via Haman on through to the king was to have all Jews killed and destroyed. Esther negotiates, in a a sense, to have a counter decree. But this counter decree did not revoke the other decree. So essentially, the decree of death was still at play while the decree of life was given by the king. In other words, the king literally said, you now can live, but you got to fight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm just preaching to myself today. <laughs> I mean, I was tripped out. When I, I read that like five times. I was like, so what, what I'm reading is He basically says you now can defend yourself. So one thing to keep in mind is before this decree, their death date was set and they had to stand there and die. But now that this decree has been put forth, he says you have the right to fight. And I think that God in 2022 is raising you up to stop counting all the things you don't have and all the things you're not surrounded by and getting all your depression. I talked about this the other week. You are so depressed by the things you don't have. You're so sad and you're so, you're so lonely. And I, and I understand because life is tragic. Life is hard. But he did not save you just to have a good life. He saved you so that you would fight. That you would have these weapons. And that you would would be raised up in this time. And I pray that in 2022, you would make a decision that the greatest success in your life is fighting spiritually in prayer. That you would reprioritize your life. Stop working so hard to be in the approval of men. Stop working so hard so that people would see you on your job and you would start working hard on your knees. You would start seeking God's face in a new and a fresh way because on every level, our society is being attacked and the people of God are being attacked. You know what it says here? This is a trip. It says in the text, uh, in verse 11... um, the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather. Defend yourself. He says you can destroy to kill. You can annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack you. Then he says, children and women included. Whew, that's cold. And what he is essentially saying, because he already said, you're called to defend yourself. It is as if the children and the women were included, presumptively, in people that were attacking them as well. The idea is that all of society was trying to snuff them out. And so they had to prepare. Can you imagine them preparing their kids? Can you imagine women just getting ready to fight? Because they know the day is coming where they're going to come to their door. And I want to tell the parents right here, they're attacking our kids. And we've not only got to prepare our kids to fight spiritually, but we've got to fight on their behalf. I met a pastor once, South Asian man. And I asked him, I met his son. His son went to Harvard. He's on the worship team at his church. Very kind kid. Extremely humble. I met his daughter, she goes to Yale. Very kind child. She's on the worship team. She shook my hand. Very humble. I met their youngest one. He's on the honor roll. He's on the worship team. Very kind child. Very humble. What are you doing, sir? Literally. Because there was a little bit of a language barrier. I said, what are you doing? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, what are you doing? Like, your kids are amazing. What are you doing? He what? Oh, my kids. He says, oil. I was like, no, no, no. What are you like? What are you teaching them? Like, what are you like? What are you what are you doing in your home? He's like he looked at his wife. He was like, and she's like, interp- She's like, oh, oil. I was like, oil. What do you? And then the woman, the wife says, every night. My husband gets anointing oil. rubs them over my kids. And he begs for them to be humble and to be raised up in a time such as this. And the man looked at me like, oil, oil. (laughs) And what I'm telling you right now, parents, oil. That our children, (laughs) I, I, I think sometimes we think if we get our kids to rehearse verses, they'll be protected. And I really believe that our intercession is really their protection. To, to pray over them, to intercede even when they're sleeping. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not telling you something that I'm, I'm doing all the time. I'm just telling you something that as I read this text, I see that all of society was going to crush the people of God. And I see that now in every level, all of society wants to crush the people of God. And we must prepare to fight. The Bible says, lastly, in Esther 9, 1 and 2, now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, on the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, watch this, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. Amen. And the Bible says later in there, Therefore, they call these days Purim. After the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter, now you could say Purim or pure, but, and of that which they had faced in this matter, and of that which happened to them. Man, the people of God are funny people. They, they said to themselves, This man Haman wanted to take us out by basically casting lots, rolling dice. So, what they did was they marked a celebration to remember when Esther intervened and they fought on their own behalfs to win. Now they have a celebration. And even now, you could go to Crown Heights. Rasul was part of a celebration several years ago, this Purim celebration. This happens all the time. It is a remembrance of that time. What they are remembering is they're not just having a feast to remember their survival. They're having a feast to remember their God, that God is the one That had another scene, even though death seemed so likely. The Proverbs say it this way. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Essentially, what they're saying in Purim is God really is the one that decides the day of our death. Not any other king, not any other life. Right now, as we close out this book as we've seen the God of reversals in so many different ways. Right now, you are in a scene in your life, and you're trying to predict the outcome. And I believe that God has raised you up to not only intercede for the outcome to be favorable on your behalf, but I believe that God raises us up to see favorable outcomes for others to reverse the outcomes for others. God is behind the scenes, and he's always got one more scene. Even though you think you can predict it, you cannot predict a story that God produces. You can't predict it. Much of your anxiety comes because you're trying to predict it, but you can't predict a a story that only God produces. Several years ago I was invited to uh, go to a Marvel movie, Endgame. I confessed my sins to my church several years ago that I had never seen a Marvel movie. There was weeping, gnashing of teeth. (laughs) They were very upset at me, for I had not bowed down no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Humor, people. So I didn't, you know, so I wasn't used to Iron Man and all these other things. I just didn't watch any of it. It just didn't interest me. So I go to Endgame because it's a big deal, and we went as a church, or we went, people from our church went. And so I'm there, and we're all hanging out. Great movie. I'm like, this is great. I like cartoons. I mean, uh, you know, I know, I know, I know. I know, exactly, 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 exactly. It's exactly how I want to close out the sermon. No, I I thought it was an incredible movie. So, uh, you know, if you haven't seen it, that's, I'm sorry. But there, you know, the the, the people are, uh, you know, uh, disappearing and all this other stuff. And I'm getting sad and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so sad. Everybody's dying. This is so sad. And then the movie ends. And so I get up to leave. And everyone surrounded is like, where are you going? And I'm like, the movie's over. They're like, no. There's one more scene. You don't really know the story, James. You see, in this kind of story, when you think it's over, there's always one more scene. And the reason why he gave us the book of Esther is because when the decree of death was put out, it seemed like everything was lost, but there was always one more scene. We learn from the greatest story, Jesus, that when he died, three days later, he rose again, telling the world, there's one more scene. And I want to encourage you right now. You may feel stuck in a scene, but I want you to know, I serve the God of reversals. There's one more God is not done with your story. God is still moving in your story. And God, I'm trusting God to reverse your story so that you might be a part of someone else's reversal. Father, we ask that tonight you would just keep us, remind us, Lord, that we are not here for ourselves, that we are in position and commission before the King to lead your people, to love your people, And so, God, I pray that you would send us out, send us out before the people, that you would force us out, force us out in front of the the jobs that we're in and the neighborhoods that we're in. Put us in a position where we might have compassion for those who are under the weight of oppression. We might have compassion for those who are feeling the weight of their lives, for those who have lost life, for those who have lost friends, for those who have lost family. We pray that we might be a compassionate voice and we might be able to spread the decree of life in the midst of the decree of death. Now, God, be with us in all these things. In Christ's name we pray, amen. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com.